listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in our show notes, including our toll-free number, where you can leave a message, ideas for future episodes, or tell us about events, campaigns, or victories in your union. Please check out Life on Record. Profit in media came from advertising, which expanded tremendously as companies competed to sell the huge volume of goods they produced. Corporate public relations infiltrated advertising into the news itself using techniques pioneered by the Wartime Committee on Public Information. One investigator found that over half the stories in the December 29, 1929 issue of the New York Times originated with press agents. In 1929, Simmons made a deal with Atlanta-based public relations agents Edward Clark and Elizabeth Tyler. For 80% of each initiation fee, they would market the Klan. Clark and Tyler hired paid organizers and trained them in market research, studying communities to identify which ever group was most hated by a local white. Native-born Protestants, not just people of color, but also radicals, immigrants, bootleggers, Catholics, Mormons, they encouraged women to stand by our men and admitted them to full clan membership. They marketed a full range of regalia and literature. By mid-decade, clan membership reached about 4 million, with chapters all across the country, an influence in both Democratic and Republican parties. Enriched by shares in the proceeds, the clan's national and regional leaders then turned on one another in an orgy of lawsuits and allegations of arson, blackmail, kidnapping, and murder. By the end of the decade, membership had fallen to about 40,000. To the extent that operations like the Klan threatened social peace, many businessmen opposed them. Financial considerations could restrain even virulent bigotry. From 1920 to 1926, his Dearborn Independent newspaper, distributed nationally through four dealers, ran articles alleging Jewish involvement in monopolies, Bolshevism, wars, foreclosures, political corruption, bootlegging, high rents, and short skirts. In 1925, American Farm Bureau attorney Aaron Sapero sued the independent for libel. To avoid paying damages, Ford publicly repudiated his accusations, though his personal opinions did not change nor did his admiration for Nazi programs diminish. True for some, but not all, 5% of households had accounts with stockbrokers, 
and 95% did not. About a third of the nation's total personal income went to the richest 5% of the people. The top 10% spent half of the nation's expenditures on health care, education, and recreation. Modern research suggests that half of all U.S. families in the 1920s had to skimp on necessities. In New York City, some 2 million people lived in substandard housing. Half of U.S. households lacked indoor flush toilets. A third lacked electric lights. Workplaces were dangerous. Deaths on the job averaged around 25,000 a year. Work-related injuries 100,000 a year throughout the decade. Average real wages adjusted for inflation rose about 1% annually from 1923 to 1929. Some workers did better. Skilled construction workers in unions did very well. Depending on their trade, their wages rose between 22 and 36% overall. Printers, paper makers, hosiery and knitting mill workers, auto workers all did better than average. Others did worse. Wages for domestic work rose about 2% over the period. For women in manufacturing, wages hardly changed. Though skilled railroad workers made much better wages, unskilled railroad laborers actually made less. Wages also declined in textile, leather, glass, tobacco, and mining. Cotton textile workers did poorly. In the South, wages fell more than 10%, close to 5% in the North. Coal miners did very poorly. Anthracite miners' wages dropped 14% from 1923 to 1929. Benjamin 30%. Agriculture workers' wages fell in the early 1920s and did not recover. They ended the decade at about the level of 1914. While manufacturing output nearly doubled from 1921 to 1929, the industrial workforce in 1929 remained about the size it had been in 1919, close to 8.6 million. Mechanization also affected farm work. Tractor use increased by a factor of 10 during the decade. By 1929, average farm income per capita was little more than a third of non-farm average. Child labor was common in the fields. In upper Midwest beet fields, where harvesting was especially backbreaking, investigators found about half the harvesters under 15 and quite a few as young as 6. Government Indian schools sent students to work in the Colorado and Kansas beet fields for as low as nine cents per day. Many suburban communities barred home sales to people of color, Jews, and other racial and ethnic minorities, and clan organizers found many suburban customers. Suburban households were often deep in debt for houses, cars, furniture, appliances, Consumer credit was easy to get and hard to pay off. For the labor movement, the 1920s were an era of defeat, retreat, and division. Total union membership fell from about 3.6 million in 1923 to 3.4 million in 1929. AFL unions had 2,769,000 members in 1929. 
1.3 million fewer than in 1920. The losses were not evenly spread. The Railroad Brotherhood and craft unions generally maintained their strength. Building trade unions actually grew. The United Mine Workers, half a million strong in 1920, had only 84,000 members in 1929. Before Gumper's death, the AFL experimented with independent political action, endorsing the 1924 Progressive Party presidential candidate, Senator Robert La Follette of Wisconsin. Twenty rail unions dropped demands for permanent government control of the railroads in return for union recognition, and joined with railroad executives to draft the Railway Labor Act. Passed by Congress in 1926, the act set up a system of compulsory arbitration and presidential intervention that made legal strikes almost impossible. In 1936, Congress extended the act's coverage to airlines. Labor leaders echoed businessmen in their love of capitalism. Some even became capitalists themselves, starting union-owned banks and other business ventures. Some union business was less respectable. By the outbreak of the Great War, labor racketeering was well established in the building trades in San Francisco, Chicago, and New York, where it functioned like any other trust combination. Unions also sometimes hired their own thugs. Dopey Benny Fien enforced union rules on employers in New York's needle trades and sold favors. Rating a manufacturer cost $150 to $600 depending on size. Removing an individual usually cost $200. Fien's mob could also help inside a union, persuading any troublemaker to retire in at least one case executing a strike breaker after a trial. Fien even accepted out-of-town contracts. Profits from prohibition promoted even more syndication in the crime industry, and gangsters like Al Capone in Chicago and Dutch Schultz in New York City took over some local unions entirely, raided their treasuries, and sold strike insurance to employers. Organizing drives and strikes continued to break out among workers abandoned by organized labor. Black railroad workers employed by the Pullman Company turned away from their ERP and started the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters and Maids in 1925 under the leadership of A. Philip Randolph. Agriculture workers began organizing again in the late 1920s Mutual benefit societies among Mexican farm workers helped form the Confederación de Unidos de Abreros Mexicanos and La Union de Trapejadores del Vela Imperial. La Union led 3,000 cantaloupe harvesters on strike in 1928. The labor movements in Puerto Rico and the Philippines moved into politics and slipped into accommodation and corruption. The sugar industry dominated the island, and the Federation Libre de Trabajadores FLT, failed again and again to win permanent contracts with the growers. The Depression began sooner and lasted longer on the island than on the mainland, but when the PSP2 over Puerto Rico's Department of Labor 
in the early 1930s, its appointment showed little interest in wages and working conditions. In 1933, when the FLT finally won a sugar industry contract for the next year's harvest, the terms were so bad the field workers briefly went on strike against it. In the Philippines, the alliance of the Congreso Obrero de Filipinas with the government began to take a toll too when Filipino field workers in Hawaii went on strike in 1924, the COF supported them, but COF founder Herman Negaldo Cruz, now director of the Philippine Labor Bureau, conducted his own investigation and reported conditions in Hawaii to be satisfactory. Ethnic divisions retarded workers' solidarity in Hawaii, the planters discouraged labor organizing by recruiting many nationalities and giving each its own holiday, Chinese New Year, Alban, the Japanese Festival of Souls, and Rizal Day for Filipinos, marking the Spanish execution of Jose Rizal in 1896. On the U.S. mainland, in some big industrial firms like Ford Motor Company, workers of different races or nationalities worked side by side. Their common subordination to the production process might teach them to help each other resist and survive, but such shop floor cooperation ended at the factory gate, and there were no plant-wide unions to foster solidarity. Color lines held firm, immigrants gathered by nationality and subdivided by religion. U.S. natives descended from northwestern Europe stood aloft from everyone else. The very few exceptions were mainly confined to the labor movement's radical fringe. While the Roaring Twenties saw gigantic increases in industrial output and home construction, unionism's declined place strict limits on both wage hikes and on workers' ability to resist the speed-ups that helped limit industrial employment. The bottom line was that working people could not buy enough to sustain the system. Earnings were simply too low and joblessness too common. By the summer of 1929, consumer spending had tapered off despite easy credit, home building had slumped, and manufacturers' unsold inventories had swelled to the point where many firms were cutting production and laying off workers. Total national income fell from about $83 billion in 1929 to $40 billion in 1932. Working people got the worst of it by January 1930. Unemployed workers numbered 4 million. By the end of 1932, 15 to 17 million people were jobless, about a third of the labor force. Millions more made do with part-time jobs. Unions lost about a half a million members. Wages were cut from 1929 to 1933. Average annual earnings fell 19% in transportation, 30% in manufacturing, 35% in mining, 42% in agriculture, 48% in construction. There was little cushion. Fewer than half of white working class families had savings in 1929 just $336 on the average. Workers of color had less. Local governments and charities tried to provide relief, but their efforts were overwhelmed. 
Homeless encampments sprang up in public or vacant lots on the outskirts of cities across the country. New York City recorded 95 deaths by starvation in 1931. Despair flourished too. New York City reported 25,000 suicides in 1930 through 1931. The depression hit minority and immigrant communities especially hard. In 1931, African Americans were 17% of the population and 33% of the unemployed. The disproportion was even more striking in cities like Charleston, South Carolina, 49% of the population and 78% of the unemployed. Texas, an entire family could work all day picking cotton and make just enough to buy themselves a single meal. Slave markets where black women waited on city streets for a day's housework they came as early as 7 in the morning, wait as late as 4 in the afternoon with the hope that they will make enough to buy supper when they go home. If they are lucky, they will get about 30 cents an hour. Immigrants were encouraged to leave by winter 1932 through 33. About half a million Mexican nationals and their children had returned to Mexico. About 40% went voluntarily often with the aid of workers' organizations like Detroit's Liga de Abreros y Campesinos. On the West Coast, a wave of anti-Asian agitation and violence targeted Filipinos. In March of 1934, Congress passed the Tidings-McDuffie Act, which capped immigration from the Philippines and paid the return fare for Filipino nationals in the U.S. who promised never to come back. The President and Congress authorized the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, RFC, which made loans to private companies for expansion and new jobs, and to local governments for relief and financed some federal construction projects. In 1930, William Green had received a gold medal from the Theodore Roosevelt Memorial Foundation in recognition of his efforts to curb labor unrest. Now he got a letter from an out-of-work machinist about to be evicted from his home. The bankers and industrialists who have been running our country have proved their utter inability or indifference to put the country in a better condition. Millions of people agreed. One proposal for relief was government-sponsored unemployment insurance. AFL headquarters denounced the scheme as socialist, but a growing number of national unions and state and local federations backed it, and it was endorsed nearly unanimously at the November 1932 annual convention. But for the most part, labor protests in the early 1930s took place outside the AFL unions, often outside the workplace as well. Workplace revolts centered in mass production, mining, and agricultural sectors where unionism had taken the worst beatings in the 1920s. In May 1931, 2,000 non-union workers went on strike at a U.S. rubber factory in Mishawaka, Indiana, to protest wage cuts and speed-ups. In July 1932, non-union workers protesting wage cuts shut down more than a hundred hosiery and furniture factories in North Carolina, in Tampa, Florida, Cuban-American cigar 
makers went on strike in 1931 when factory owners ousted the lectors who read aloud to the workers, probably to speed up the work since the workers hired these readers themselves. In January and February of 1930, two strikes hit California's Imperial Valley, one among Mexican and Filipino-filled hands, the other among white packing and shed workers. TUUL organizers set up an Agricultural Industrial Workers League after its most active organizers were convicted of criminal syndicalism, TUUL organizers started the Cannery and Agriculture Workers Industrial Union, which survived into 1935 and led 24 strikes, losing only three. January 1931 saw an uprising of 500 black sharecroppers in England, Arkansas. The following summer, their counterparts in Tallapoosa County, Alabama, launched the Sharecroppers Union, which had about 2,000 members across the state by spring 1933 and 6,000 a year later. The largest protest movement of the early 1930s involved the unemployed. Radical activists organized high-profile demonstrations like the communist-led hunger marches of more than a million jobless workers in major cities across the country in 1930. Communists in Kung Workers After Hours Club supported calls for work or bread and unemployment insurance and helped organize the Chinese Unemployed Alliance. CUA led demonstrations against the powerful Consolidated Chinese Benevolent Associations demanding jobs and housing. Socialists built similar groups in Baltimore and Chicago. Unemployed organizing sometimes shaded into workplace organizing. On March 7, 1932, for example, Detroit Unemployed Council joined with TUUL auto workers in a mass protest in front of the Ford Company's River Rouge plant. 3,000 demonstrators demanded that Ford slow down its assembly lines and rehire laid-off workers. The unemployed movement routinely organized across color lines and its communist-led sectors were especially active in defense of African Americans' rights. The councils rallied to support the nine young black men sentenced to death on false charges of rape in Scottsboro, Alabama in 1931, and Angelo Herndon, a 19-year-old black communist sentenced to death under Georgia's anti-insurrection law for organizing an interracial hunger march in Atlanta in 1932. Both struggles were successful, though justice was long in coming Herndon was freed by the Supreme Court after a five-year legal battle, and the last Scottsboro defendants were released in 1950. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcasts, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening.